Good morning, everyone. My name is Duncan, and thank you to the children for that video this morning. Uh, we're continuing our series uh, this morning on the uniqueness of Jesus, and we're looking particularly at the example of Jesus' complete trust in the sovereignty of God. So if you'd like to turn to Mark and chapter 14, we're going to be looking at Jesus' experience in the Garden of Gethsemane. So that's Mark chapter 14 and from verse 32 to verse 36. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. I've heard the phrase, God is sovereign, many times over the last few months. And I guess you've said it and you've heard it. But what do we actually mean by God is sovereign? All Christians say that God is sovereign, but there are different views on the subject. Theologians and really clever people have wrestled with this truth. They've debated it, they've YouTubed it, uh, they've written many words about it over hundreds of years. It's complex and I guarantee there would be different views uh, in this room if you were here this morning. Some would say that God ordains and plans all natural events, disasters, disease, injuries and all choices good and evil, made by man. That God plans the fall in the Garden of Eden and plans every sinful choice men and women have made ever since. This is the hyper-Calvinistic view and the variations within this view. I've heard it described like tiles in a Scrabble bag. You know when you pull out the tiles from the Scrabble bag that God knows which letter you will pull out of a Scrabble bag. He's planned it. Now, on the one hand, that is comforting, but God's planning evil raises huge questions, like, did God plan the Holocaust, the genocides, the destruction of the Twin Towers? Does God plan a day when a person will contract cancer? or for rapes and murders to happen, or pandemics, earthquakes, famine and the like? Did God plan that King David, a man after his own heart, would commit adultery and murder? And of course, God himself ordained the most evil event in history, the crucifixion of his own son. These are deep and complex questions. Again, I've heard it described that life is like a game of chess. We are pawns and God is playing on both sides. 
to be upfront with you, I don't believe that God is the creator of author and author of sin or sickness or disasters. He is holy. God is love, as we considered a couple of weeks ago. And in the beginning, his creation was made perfect and he said it was good. In fact, God said it was very good. It's hard to understand that all disasters and sinful choices of man are planned by God. This seems against the loving nature of God. However, the Bible clearly shows us that God allowed some disasters like the flood, disasters like vast numbers of people dying from disease, and in the suffering of Job, God actually invited Satan to look at his servant and he allowed Satan to inflict suffering on Job within limits. Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus, Pilate and Herod in the trial of Jesus show us that God allows sinful choices of man. God has given us, of course, the beautiful gift of free will. We are not robots and God does not violate the choices that we make. The Bible, as well as teaching sovereignty, also clearly teaches us about human responsibility. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, there, there are those that would say, God does not know the future at all, that the future is somehow fluid. God is sovereign, but he doesn't know how it's going to work out from one day to the next. This view is called open theism. This view says that God does not unilaterally decide what to do, that his decisions are influenced by human attitudes and responses. This somehow makes God very weak. This view um, obviously triggered a lot of significant, uh, triggered a significant controversy in the evangelical world. And open theism is clearly unbiblical and is heresy. Another mainstream view is Arminianism. The Arminian view says that God doesn't cause or plan all our voluntary choices. God's involvement, therefore, doesn't include every specific detail or of every event that happens, that God responds to human choices and actions and does so in such a way that ultimately his purposes will be accomplished. Simply put, Arminians would say that God is in charge but not in control. Just as a king would be in charge of a country and rule his nation, but he doesn't control everything that his subjects would do. I have some sympathy with this view, but think it is probably playing around with words because being in charge and being in control are very similar. C.H. Spurgeon said this, if I find it taught in one place, that's in scripture, that everything is ordained or planned by God, then that is true. And if I find in another place that God is responsible for his actions, that is true. Spurgeon obviously didn't fit into a box, and I guess most of us don't fit into a neat box either on this view. I think Spurgeon was saying we need space in our brain that can hold these two tensions together. On the one hand, God is sovereign, but he has also made man responsible for his actions. If you like, we have responsibility how we play the Scrabble tile. Let me ask you a question. 
Who is responsible for climate change? What would you say? Maybe you'd like to chew that over lunch today. This has been a very long introduction, but I want us to see that this is a deep and profound and mysterious uh, issue uh, that we grapple with here. But let's look at some examples from Jesus' life of God's sovereignty. Before Jesus' birth, a prophet called Micah prophesied that a ruler, a king, would come from Bethlehem. Mary and Joseph, as you'll remember in the story, were expecting Jesus and they were living in Nazareth. Caesar Augustus at the time decreed a census for tax purposes, which meant that the population had to register in their own town where they were born. For Joseph, that was Bethlehem, many miles away from Nazareth. So you can see the hand of God, you can see God's sovereignty in this registration process that brought Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem when Jesus was born. In Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, don't be anxious about life, about food, about drink, about clothing, because Father God even looks after the birds. He knows when they're going to pop their clogs. He didn't actually quite say it quite like that, but he knows all the days of our life. So Jesus taught that we can trust in God's provision, his sovereign provision for us. On another occasion, a crowd was so angry with Jesus' teaching that they manhandled him out of the town and brought him to a cliff edge and were going to throw him over the cliff edge. And Luke says, but Jesus passed through their midst. He went away because it wasn't Jesus' time to be arrested. His time wasn't complete. I guess you've got many examples in your own life of God's sovereignty in situations. I was driving on the A22 back to London on one occasion and uh, I was trying to pass a lorry and I misjudged it and I was halfway past this huge great long lorry and another lorry was coming straight for me and there were blaring of horns. I slammed on the brakes, was very grateful there was nothing behind me. God overruled my foolish action at that point, my foolish decision. I guess you've got stories of God's provision for you as well. God also shows his sovereignty, uh, Jesus showed his sovereignty over nature. While he was in a boat on a storm with his disciples, he rebuked the wind and the waves and the storm was silenced. Jesus also demonstrated sovereignty over fish on several occasions, over sickness, disease, sin and even the death of a boy and his friend. So let's look at this passage in particular in Mark's Gospel, uh, verse 36. And I want to just draw some things out of just this one verse uh, this morning that help us with the sovereignty of God. Verse 36 says, And Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Here we have three profound sentences. The first sentence, Abba Father, all things are possible for you. Here we see a declaration. The Father's sovereign power is declared here by Jesus. All things are possible. Jesus was acknowledging the Father's absolute sovereign power in all things and declaring in the hours that lay before him this truth 
He said, all things are possible for you. You, sovereign Abba, you have power. You have power to do the impossible. Power that this cup might pass from me. This echoes the angel's words, don't they, to the Virgin Mary, for nothing will be impossible with God. And words spoken to Abraham, is anything too hard for the Lord? Jesus makes this declaration that God is sovereign, that nothing is impossible. No intervention is impossible for Father God to bring about his will and his purpose. The second sentence Jesus said was remove this cup. So we've had a declaration and here is a petition. The Father's sovereign will is sought here by Jesus. Jesus is saying, Abba, Father, will you remove this cup from me? You, Father, have the power to change these circumstances. Abba, do you really want me to be crucified at this point in time? It is possible. If it is possible, will this hour pass from me? This raises another question. If God is sovereign, then why pray at all? If it's going to happen, why pray? If God's planned it and ordained it, why bother pray at home? Why bother pray with your family? Why bother pray as a church? What is the role of prayer? Well, Jesus is seeking after the sovereign will of God at this point. And that is one of the purposes of prayer. It's one of the main purposes of prayer, to seek the will of our Father. Romans 8 verse 26 says this, We do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groaning, as Christ did in Gethsemane, too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We see here the humanity of Jesus, not weakness, but humanity, seeking to align himself to the perfect will of God. The last three years of Jesus' life were leading up to this point. Jesus had warned his disciples on numerous occasions that he would give his life. He knew what he was about to face. The imminent mock trial, the torture, the ridicule, the humiliation, the shame, the flogging, the pain and the slow death and asphyxiation. And he cries, Abba, remove this. Let me not go through this. This was Jesus' prayer. Jesus knew that he could have called the angels to come and rescue him, but he wanted only to do the Father's will. Jesus was aligning himself with the will of the Father through prayer. Jonah, of course, initially did not align himself to the will of God. He ran in the opposite direction. And even if you stay when God has said something or run, it's still not aligning yourself with the will of God. But prayer enables us to see the Father's will, to see his heart, to hear his voice. And what a privilege to be able to come to our Father and align ourselves to his will. So Jesus declared the sovereign will of God. He petitioned to know the will of God. And the third statement here, he says, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus submits himself to the Father's sovereign will. He yields to it. In the temptations of Jesus, 
the Spirit led him into the desert. And Jesus in his humanity was tempted through hunger, the lure of idols and power. And he was strengthened by the word. He was strengthened also by the angels, scripture tells us, and by the Holy Spirit. Temptation and tough times have their purpose in building and shaping us. And this is what is happening to you during this pandemic. You are being strengthened by his power. You are being nourished by his word. Jesus was about to face a rigged trial and then a Roman crucifixion, the cruelest way to die. How painful a decision was this for Jesus and for God the Father to make? A sovereign decision to allow his only son to die for the sin of the world. Yet in this decision, we have, I believe, an important insight into the sovereignty of God. If you've zoned out for a little while, come back and listen to this point, because this is what I think is absolutely crucial for us to understand this morning. Father God allowed the death of his son for redemptive purposes. One of the meanings of the word for redeem is to save from distress, to save from something worse. To redeem us enables us to enter into an everlasting kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus, free from sin, sickness, disease, and disaster. Father God allowed the free will, sinful choices of men, of Judas, Pilate, Herod, and the crowd, to commit unjustified torture and crucifixion of Jesus for the purpose of saving you and me. And here is a key for us to understand one reason why God allows evil things to happen in our world and in our lives. At times, our Father lifts the veil of protection and allows and permits sin natural disasters, disease, and even sinful choices of other people to affect and disrupt our lives. In allowing evil things to happen, God is not being evil because he is not the author or creator of evil. However, I firmly believe in the sovereignty of God and that his purpose in allowing evil will ultimately be for redemptive purposes saving us from something worse because all things work together for good. Let's briefly look at a few other examples from scripture. Joseph had the most incredible destiny dream from God but was betrayed by his brothers and sold to slave traders. The reason God allowed Joseph to be sold into slavery through the sinful actions of his brothers was many, many years in the future to save nations from starvation. With the long view, we can see this. If Joseph had remained on the family farm, that would not have happened. Joseph's own words to his brothers were, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God allowed Joseph to go to the pit, to the prison, to the palace, to provide for the nations. God allowed evil to happen for saving and redemptive purposes. Years later, when the Hebrews were slaves to the Egyptians under Pharaoh, it said that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh's heart was already hard, but God hardened it further, which caused him to commit evil against the people. But God ultimately showed his power 
and was working out his redemptive purposes for his people. The Assyrians took the nation of Judah captive. This evil that God allowed was with the purpose of bringing them to repentance. There are many other examples of God's redemption uh, through evil purposes. Romans 8 tells us, doesn't it? And we know that for those who love God, so for you this morning, if you love God, you know this, that all things will work together for good. All things means good and evil. All things in your life will work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. Those painful, disastrous events, disease or violation, unjust actions, untimely death and loss, these things that come into our lives, the Father has allowed. They are for some greater good and ultimately will be for redemptive purposes. Did God send coronavirus? Well, it seems he allowed it through poor hygiene or whatever the cause was. And he will have some redemptive purpose through it all, which we cannot yet see. And I'm certainly praying for a great harvest that many people would come to know Jesus through this period. So I conclude that sometimes our Heavenly Father allows and permits evil to affect us and come against us. At other times, it seems events are caused by our own folly or the sinful choices of others. But in it all, we can trust God that he will work out his redemptive purposes for those who love him. Jesus declared God's sovereignty. Jesus petitioned about God's sovereignty and he submitted to God's sovereignty. The bottom line here, there is mystery, but we are and forever will be in the safe hands of God, our loving Heavenly Father, who is sovereign. Before we sing our last song together, let's pray together. Father, we don't understand all about the season that we're living through but we thank you indeed that you are preparing us for things for the future. You're shaping us, you're nourishing us in this time, uh, this season that we're living in. And you ultimately, God, are working out your sovereign purposes. You have redemptive purposes through this season that we are living in and we trust you in that. Let me just read a very familiar verse over you as we're just praying together. Jeremiah 29 says, and God says this to you, for I know the plans I have for you, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And Psalm 91 says, I will rescue you. I will protect you. I will answer you. I will be with you in trouble. I will direct you. I will honor you. I will satisfy you. I will show you my salvation. Thank you that we're forever in 
your safe hands. Heavenly Father, amen.